welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and it's nice to be with you here in 2021. It's going to be a show that feels a lot like travel because not on purpose, but my two guests have the most plummy, rich, gorgeous British accents. So, It really feels like the travel show today. Before I get to them, though, let me remind everybody, we want you to visit us at fromers.com. Actually, you can get this podcast at fromers.com slash podcast. But whatever platform you're on, it doesn't really matter. On fromers.com, you're going to find some really interesting articles right now. In addition to the one that I've been talking about for weeks, which has incredible writers talking about America, we have two really good new ones by Jason Cochran. Maybe I'll have them on the show next week. One is a fascinating one about how soon you can travel or how soon scientists think you'll be able to travel once you've been vaccinated. He does a survey of what the medical professionals and the scientists are saying right now. This all could change, but it's pretty interesting. And he has another really fun one about the 10 items that will get you pulled over by the TSA and given a bag check. That That's a hilarious one. So visit us on Fromers.com to read those. Uh, As I said, I might have uh, Jason on the show to discuss them, maybe next week. All right. Our first guest is Matthew Beaumont. He has a terrific new book out. It's called The Walker on Finding and Losing Yourself in the Modern City. And what he does is he looks at some of the world's greatest thinkers and writers from the last two centuries and how they have approached the activity of walking in an urban setting. I know it sounds very uh, woo-woo, but it's it's actually quite an interesting topic, as I think you'll find in this interview. Welcome, Matthew. So nice to have you on The Travel Show. Thank you, Pauline, very much. So when you were writing The Walker, uh, obviously we see in the title that it's about walking in the modern city. Why did you decide to concentrate on that? It's funny, when I, when I think of, of great minds writing about walking, I think of Thoreau and I think of maybe the ancient Greeks talking about communing with nature, but you decided to take a very urban approach to this. What was your reasoning? I suppose there are personal reasons and more uh, intellectual reasons, as it were, historical reasons. The, the personal reasons are that I live in I live in a city. I live in London. Always have done, and walking in the city is very important to me. I feel it's very important to my mental health as as much as as to getting round to getting round the place to to moving from from A to B to getting to work and back to home again. All that kind of thing. And of course, at the moment, with the pandemic in progress, or perhaps at the beginning of, a, of an epoch of pandemics, I, I fear, oh. walking has been uh, has, has come to the fore again. Walking in the city has been the only means that many people have had of, of escaping the home, often a, a rather claustrophobic home, given that we're all cooped up with one another so much at the moment. 
So walking, yeah, walking has, has become crucially important again, I think, as a way in cities, as a way of exercising our, our freedom, of stimulating ourselves in, in times when we're, we're really rather understimulated. But then there, there are the historical, the intellectual reasons, as I say, which which are, I suppose, related to the fact that my academic research has, has often centered on writers who have uh, lived in cities and who have, have put walking at the center of their experience of, of modernity, all the way back from, you know, to, to the 18th century. But I'm particularly interested in, in people like Dickens and Virginia Woolf and others. Well, what was so fascinating was these writers, in looking at walking, they make it in many ways encapsulate the human condition, whatever that condition might mean at the time of the writer you're looking at. It could be problems of capitalism. It could be how one walks upright. It could be what does wandering and not having to rush from place to place means. Uh, it, it was fascinating to see how deeply all of these thinkers, the ones you mentioned and others, looked at what would think of as a very prosaic activity, walking. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I think you put that very well. I mean, it is, as it were, <laughs> quite literally pedestrian, the business of walking. <laughs> right. Um, but, um, but it is at the same time, I think, absolutely imbued with symbolic meaning. And it tells us, as you've rightly implied, all sorts of things about the, the world we live in, about the, the interior world, in fact, that we habit as well as the exterior world, about what we're like as, as people. So I sometimes dream of a vast taxonomy of people's ways of walking, uh, of their, mm. their gates, uh, almost a, like a, a 19th century equivalent of those great physiognomical projects where mad scientists would, uh, <laughs> would compile, uh, you know, great tabulations of, of what people's faces looked like and what their features meant in certain arrangements. I think one could do the same thing with walking and learn an awful lot about how people relate to the world they inhabit. You know, if they walk in a rather crabbed and unconfident style, what does that tell us about how they feel about the city they they live in about how they feel about themselves uh, I, I often see people who who don't walk with any confidence who walk with a certain hesitancy or perhaps they're physically uh, impaired in some way or another they they don't walk with the kind of fluidity that it seems to me in a in a truly free society we would we would always walk with right um so yeah, I'm interested in the in the way in which walking is is a, a means of registering our alienation from our environment, uh, but also how it might become, an, as I say, an exercise in expressing freedom. Well, uh, and you talk about there is a, a term that I've always loved, flaneur, uh, which means to a person who I think well, tell me if I'm right. It means a person who walks, who explores, who yeah, just gads about. But there's a class implication with that term. You have to have the money and the means 
to not be rushing from place to place. And you, you start out the book talking about this, that, you know, and it, it gets to the heart of what, what I do, which is travel, which is gadding about the world, walking mm-hmm. in different cities as well as in nature sites. So tell us what some of the great writers have written about the, the flaneur or the flaneuse, I think was the female version of that. That's right. Yeah. Rather less common uh, phenomenon, right. the flaneurs, um, because, because historically women movements, particularly in cities, have been so much more uh, restricted and, and, and hemmed in. Their, their freedom has been so much more curtailed. But you're absolutely right. The flaneur was really a, an early 19th century French phenomenon in, in the first instance. It was someone, a bourgeois, middle class or upper middle class man who had the leisure and time, as you say, to enjoy being a tourist in their own city, I suppose, that would be one way of putting it, becoming a traveler in their own own city, strolling about, looking in shop windows, gazing at women often, <laughs> um, right. exploring uh, hidden byways, looking at the way in which people dressed and rolled their umbrellas and decoding the signs of the street enjoying stopping and observing crowds and the, the movements and the rhythms of those crowds. So taking the temperature of, uh, of their times and of the, of, of the city. And it becomes particularly important in the work of Charles Baudelaire, the, the great French poet, who proposes that the flaneur is something slightly different, is not quite such a comfortable figure as he had been in the first place. And in fact, he is also rather inhibited, that he is rather cramped, rather mm. desperate. Is Baudelaire, I suppose one might say, he, he puts him on the run, the flaneur. Suddenly mm. in Baudelaire and the people who Baudelaire likes to, to read, like Edgar Allan Poe, the flaneur, the person, the single man walking through the streets of the city is, is a rather hunted and haunted figure. And lots of the writers I'm interested in are also committed to exploring the ways in which one feels hunted and haunted in the city when mm. one walks around it. Why are they feeling hunted and haunted? I mean, I know it's different for each writer, but give could you give you some examples? Well, as I say, Dickens is one of the uh, ones I'm, I'm most interested in, partly because he was such a, an omnivorously <laughs> appetitive walker. I mean, he'd walk everywhere and anywhere and at an enormously fast pace. I mean, his friends complained that he walked regularly at four and a half miles an hour, um, which, I mean, I sometimes try to <laughs> try to compete with him in my head when I'm walking to work. And uh, it's impossible to sustain that pace. I don't really know how he did it. He probably, he walked like he wrote. He was, uh, he was such an incredibly fast writer as well. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, he, he did. And he was, he used to walk in particular, I think, when he was unhappy at home. So there are times when his marriage was collapsing, for example, in the late 1850s, when he would walk at night in particular, all the way from his house in London, in Bloomsbury, and uh, central London, to his country residence in Kent. So it would, it would take him the whole night. It was a distance of mm. 25 wow. miles or so. And he would storm through the night. And by the time he reached there at dawn, he would be almost hallucinating with tiredness. And I think it was a way for him, as walking at length and particularly in the night has been for, for other writers uh, and thinkers, a way of both of, of thinking, of giving oneself the time and the space to think and of obliterating thinking. 
of 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 somehow cancelling out one's consciousness. Dickens inhabits a a kind of dream space, I think, in his head when he walks, um, and and that appeals to, to many other writers too. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, my favorite, Virginia Woolf. Mm. Uh, my personal favorite as, as one of the writers you talk about. Uh, and also coming at this as a, at a different perspective because she's one of the few women uh, that you cover. Not the few. I mean, the, unfortunately, when you look at the history of, of uh, when you look at literary history, it's, it's more men than women. Mm. How did she approach this topic? Well, there's a a wonderful essay she wrote called Street Haunting. And uh, I discussed that a little bit in my, my book, perhaps not as much as I'd like to have done, actually, where she describes one winter evening in London going out to buy a pencil. And she doesn't really need a pencil. She's got plenty of pencils. She's a writer. She, <laughs> uh, she, she just wants an excuse to walk. And she heads out into the evening under cover of dusk. I think it might be raining slightly. And she loves the life of the streets at that time. She loves the fact that under the street lamps, under the gaslight, everything seems slightly different to how it does in the day. Everything is slightly other. There's a certain shadowiness to things. And she loves under the cover of the semi-darkness being a kind of flaneurs, being that female equivalent of the flaneur. It gives her a, a freedom and it also feeds her imagination. I think it feeds her, uh, it gives her ideas for characters about how one, one might characterize people in her novels. It's in Mrs. Dalloway, her novel from 1925, set in London on a single day, that walking is, is absolutely central. And she, she presents various different kinds of walking mm. with various different kinds of gates in that novel, I think. There's Mrs. Dalloway herself, an aristocratic woman, walks fairly uh, confidently um, with a certain stridency, I suppose, and, uh, and shops. And in, in she's shopping for flowers at the very beginning of the novel. Then there are other figures. There's her old, her former lover, Peter Walsh, who follows a young woman who he sees through the streets of central London, the shopping district, Oxford Street, etc. And he becomes a kind of stalker. And then there's Septimus Smith, who is the shell-shocked uh, veteran of the First World War, who is suffering from a very severe psychosis. And Wolf, Wolf is brilliant at, at uh, reproducing a, a sense of his mental crisis. And he walks in a much more hesitant and, and uh, crabbed and incapacitated way. Um, so she, I think, is one of these writers who's interested in exploring what walking tells us about people's about, uh, people, about what's going on inside their heads and about how they cope with what early 20th century philosophers and sociologists and others described in terms of the onslaught of, of everyday life in the city, the, the, the way in which we have to compete with traffic, with noise, mm. with smell, right. all that. Yeah. Well, and you start the book with the surrealists, with Andre, Andre Breton, who had, had, I, I hope I, I say this in the right way, but he seems to ex approach walking as an experiment in life. Uh, how am I going to make this walk interesting. And, and sometimes uh, that involves involving the other people that he runs into uh, along the walk. Can you talk a little bit about, about the surrealist way to walk? Yeah, that's right. Breton, he says at one point that, that um, the street is the only valid field of experience. 
the street is the only valid field of experience. So he, he thinks that that the street is, as you say, it's a, it's a site of experimentation. It's where stuff happens. It's a kind of laboratory, the city street, and one can conduct experiments on oneself and on one's uh, one's you know fellows in the streets. But at the same time, if it's a laboratory, if it's where one can test feelings and one's imagination, one's social relation, it's also an adventure. One only has to step into the streets. Breton, the other surrealists, thought, and they too were particularly interested in walking at night, in fact, because of its otherness, its, its difference to the day. One only had to step into the street to open oneself up to all sorts of possibilities. One assumes that walking in the streets of the city is, is a routinized business. And of course, for many, it was for the clerks that Dickens portrays in his novels in the 19th century, for Breton's uh, contemporaries who were rushing about the city, getting from A to B, going to work, hurrying home, etc. It was routinized. But for Breton and the other surrealists, it was also in opposition to that, and as a kind of solution to that problem, a, a site of, of, of experimentation and adventure. One should open oneself up. One should one should risk encountering people. I often think my mum is is an exemplary surrealist on the mm. when she's like this because the older she's lucky got, you the more she, <laughs> the, the older she's got, the more keen she's been to to stop people in the street and start conversations. <laughs> wow. And to uh, yeah, just to just to, to to kind of meet people and 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 wander about and um yeah we should all be a bit more like that i think well she probably does it because she's of that generation i mean you talk at the very beginning of the book about how we are polluting our experience of being pedestrians because we're so tied to our devices now uh, that we're not really on the streets anymore mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah we're we're all victims of this phenomenon of so-called distracted walking where we we walk down the streets as you as you say uh, looking at our phone making phone calls and far worse mm-hmm. sending texts even worse than that sending emails <laughs> basically bringing our work into these activities which should be exempt from the from the pressures and the logic of work. You know, we should be really relishing these moments when between the office and the work or between our office and the cafe, we, uh, we, we buy our sandwich at lunchtime. We have a moment's freedom. We can let our imaginations off the leash. We can look around us. We can enjoy our surroundings, seeing the other people, smelling the city, touching it even. Uh, instead, we, we manage to fill those moments, those parenthetical moments as it were with with work too with work activities mm. too or with or with social activity that that we cram in because the rest of the time we're working calls to our you know aged parents or phone calls to friends who we're feeling guilty about because we haven't contacted them for a long time it's all subject to the same pressure and um, and what we should be doing is resisting this impulse to distract ourselves and 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 enjoying what i call a kind of undistracted mode of walking instead yeah yeah but it's a, it's a delightful book it's called the walker on finding and losing yourself in the modern city thank you so much matthew for appearing on the travel show thank you pauline it was a pleasure to talk to you Our next guest is a man whose name is going to be familiar to anybody in the travel industry. It's Jeffrey Weil. And yes, he runs one of the most important 
public relations agencies under his name uh, in all of travel, representing destinations, hotels, you name it. But the reason we're having him on is he just wrote the most surprisingly wonderful memoir about his life in the industry and his life in general. He's had a fascinating life. It is called All Abroad, A Memoir of Travel and Obsession. So here is Jeffrey Weil. Well, Jeffrey, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Well, thank you so much. I have to say, your memoir has been transporting. It really is such a charming, fascinating look back, not only at your life, but also at the at the travel industry in the last, ooh, I, I don't want to date you, would it be fair to say, uh, 40 years? Uh, well, I, I think you could probably say close to 50 Yes. Um, well, it is. Thank you for thank you for saying that. Oh, I mean, sure. I've, I've tried to meld my story with commentary on the business and the not not only the business, but how travel has changed and how it hasn't changed. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fascinating. Well, you start the book at your bar mitzvah, right after it, with this massive pile of, of gifts all around you. But these are a specific type of gifts because you had this obsession with travel from a young age, and it's an obsession that came from your family in a certain yes, it way. Is. My, my mother was born in Australia and had a very dramatic emigration to England during World War One, during which they were torpedoed. My father was born in England, but his family came from Germany, and there was there were endless trips back and forth. And I grew up in this world of hearing about these journeys that had so much momentousness and so much character that I uh, I just fell into it. And my right. father was very much obsessed with talking about traveling and staying in hotels and which hotels and he has this he had an obsession that the hotel had to have a private bathroom i mean this that dates me right although you as a young boy stayed in hotels well they had a private bathroom but they put you in your own little room and you had to go down the hallway exactly which and seems was, you know for for helicopter parents today that just seems amazing that I they would do that i can't imagine it i have three kids and the idea that one of them, you know, a six-year-old, six years old would be on a different floor is incomprehensible. Yeah, for a very different time. But you say at the beginning of the book that you never were into backpacking or the idea of climbing mountains. You really loved both being a passenger and being a guest. Why is that? And what did that mean to you? It, it, it's interesting. And I don't quite know how to answer it. To me, the hotel was part of the trip, was a, was a, a central element to the trip. Getting to the place was part of, was, was, was central. And actually being there was, in a, in a, in a bizarre sense, secondary. And I, you know, my, my father had this draw of maps that we would pour over. And I'm talking about when I'm six, when I was six or seven, right. um, not when I was 15. And I just became obsessed with the, the, the modus operandi of traveling to a point where 
my favorite bar mitzvah gift was a subscription to the the World Airline Guide, which just kind of booked like a telephone directory that came out every month with the flights of every airline. And I would sit and study it um, like a nut job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you went into the right industry, obviously. And it was interesting when reading it. So you do, I mean, there were some Philip Roth-esque parts to the book where you say the part of the uh, frisson of being in a hotel. I mean, you were a young boy and you would be going to use a bathtub that somebody else's naked body was in it. I thought there was a lot of very interesting, psychologically astute remarks on why you became so obsessed with hotels and modes of transportation. I think it always has intrigued me, and it and it does to to it did as a child, and it does to this day. When I'm at a hotel and I pass a a a, a hotel door and it says "Do not disturb," I'm intrigued about. I mean, it could be they would just want a nap. It could right. be that they're plotting to blow up the church across the street. Hmm. It could be that they're having an illicit affair. It could be it could be anything, but it's it I always found the mysteriousness of that closed door sort of in, very intriguing. And and as a child it never occurred to me that it was odd to be bathing in a bathtub that somebody before me had bathed in and it was still warm. Right. But as an adult, looking back on it, it it certainly was uh Interesting. (laughs) Yes. And you bring a lot of the textures of traveling at that time to life. I love the fact that you go into detail. You're you're getting to go as a, I think, a young teenager to Israel because your brother has moved there and is marrying a, a woman there. And you get a booklet before you get on the plane to explain what flying is like. Can you tell about that booklet? I, I just loved that part. It was a brochure produced by Alal that explained to the pass- to passengers the difference between flying on a jet and flying on a propeller plane. And it, it went into the most extraordinary detail about what you would hear after takeoff and how you would, and how the takeoff would be very steep and how the, there was this Passenger in uh, passenger service unit above the seat that from which an oxygen mask would drop, and that which I apparently I assume before jets, it, none of that was there. Sure, um, and it was this detailed. I still have it. I mean, it's this very detailed booklet. Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. That that people wouldn't have known. And I, actually, some of it was, was clarifying for me. You know, you're going to hear this as you take off and this is starting to land. It was it was interesting that they felt the need to do that. Now, of course, that trip to Israel was very much a turning point in your life and, and helped you achieve what you ended up achieving. How was the Israel of that time different than it is today? What was what was the Israel back then like? And it can you give me the year? 1961. Right. It was a very simple, very, I don't want to use the word primitive because it wasn't primitive, but it was very, it wasn't poor exactly, but it was very um, socialist and very mm-hmm. unluxurious in terms of everyday life. 
um, although we stayed at the King David Hotel, which was luxurious. But there was a simplicity to things. There was a, a you know, we drove around in, in cars that were from the 40s. This was huh. 1961. Right. Big, big old Packards and big old Cadillacs. The there were two lane roads everywhere. There were no highways. There were the. It, it was just a very simple country. It was. I mean, Israel was eleven years, uh, thirteen years old, uh, and it was still struggling to to survive and still sure. tr- struggling to to absorb immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was. And of course, in Jerusalem, where my brother lived, there was this border down the middle of the city that was a little alarming, in fact, maybe a lot alarming. Hmm. And my brother was a bit dramatic. So he would say, well, that's no man's land. Don't don't go too close. So there was, it, it was totally, totally different from the Israel of today. Well, the simplicity of Israel also is echoed in your explanation of the simplicity of travel back then. So when you grow up, you uh, start out working for Thomas Cook, first in the UK, and then you are sent to New York, where, as you say in the book, there were no deals, there were no angles about travel. It really was that back then, travel agents were the gatekeepers. It wasn't that they were, they weren't zhuzhing things or fixing things for their clients. Everything was very straightforward. Yes, it was. Um, I mean, there was, you could go first class, you could go super first class, you could go to a, a, a fine hotel, you could go to a medium hotel, but but there were no deal, you know, there, but to fly from New York to London, whatever airline you picked, there was one fare. There was no, there were no, you didn't, you didn't have to look around for for somebody who could get it cheaper. It just right. didn't exist. But there was a, a definite glamour to travel. I loved your description of the parties that people would throw for their friends before the cruise ship left. They would, if they were passengers, they would get to invite their buddies on for cocktails and canapes. Absolutely, it was it was just an automatic thing. There was a at all the piers um, in Manhattan. There was a I think it was a dollar that hmm. visitors paid. Uh, to go on board. I don't actually think you needed to be seeing anybody off. You could just go ab- aboard and explore the ship. And then there was this announcement over the loudspeakers, all ashore, who's, all, all ashore is going ashore. But And people met in their cabins and they, they prearranged it. And we as travel agents prearranged how many bottles of champagne and how many and canapes for how many people? <laughs> wow! It was uh, it was a it was a time that before security became an overarching change to everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it was also, glamorous. Yeah, and you also talk about how intertwined the development of photography and the development of the modern tourist industry was. I thought that was a really interesting insight. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, it, yes, absolutely. I mean, it was coincidental, perhaps, but photography and Thomas Cook, who really invented the, the concept of, of group travel in 1840, photography and, and that kind of travel were invented in the same decade, and people would were finally able to to create memories of their trips 
in an easy way. You know, the French word for uh, the French word to remember is souvenir, Hmm. and that you know, taking photographs has become so much so central to our traveling that that having the picture taken outside Notre Dame is is almost more important than actually seeing Notre Dame. It's it's creating that memory that will live much longer than the five minutes you actually spent in the cathedral. Right. Um, Well, you had a very cynical, I thought, take on why people travel, at least back when you were working at Thomas Cook. You, You felt that people traveled to have had traveled in a certain way. Exactly. It, 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 I, I kind of divined it from the way people booked trips and, and wanted to go on trips. It, it, was, it was very often that they wanted to have been to India, almost more than they wanted to go to India. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's how it felt. Well, uh, um, you you explained it further when you you talked about the fact that you were once a lecturer on a cruise ship talking about the history of the places you were that people were about to get off the ship and see, and that you had very sparse crowds, and you felt that that had more to do with that people weren't perhaps interested in digging deeply into what they were about to see, which for me was a bit heartbreaking to read, to be honest. It, it was it was sad. It was almost. And I and I've seen it on cruises that 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 the, having to get off the ship at ports to go and slip around is almost annoying. But you have to do it because you have to be able to say that you've been to Curacao or or Stockholm. But it's it's almost drudgery having to do it. Right. <laughs> And yeah. I felt that when I was lecturing. Uh, yeah. No. No. That was that was a very sad. So you are working at Thomas Cook, and then a chance encounter changes the course of your life and you become deeply enmeshed in the world of PR. Tell us uh, that story. That was surprising to me. Well, uh, I I was a salesman at Thomas Cook and on um, their office on Fifth Avenue and doing very well and doing so well that I was promoted into management, which had to do with opening branch offices and, and doing the budgets for 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 staffing and I really didn't care. I wanted to be involved in booking people's hotels and I wanted to be in travel, not sure. opening branch offices. And I bumped into I on Fifth Avenue, I bumped into a man that I knew who who was the head of the Israel tourist office in New York. And we were chatting and he said, Oh by the way, we're looking for a new PR director. Um, let us know if you can think of anybody. And I said, oh, sure, I will. And I walked about two blocks, and it was like a gong hit my head. And I said, yeah, I do know somebody, because at that age, I was 26. I knew more about travel to Israel than probably any 26-year-old on the planet. And I knew that I could describe it to people. I didn't really know what PR was. Right. Um, but I <laughs> that was very that, funny. You learned I, it from your secretary, from your I assistant. Did. I did. She was, <laughs> she was, she was wonderful. Um, and I'm still Facebook friends with her. She lives in Mexico. Wow. And yeah, she taught me the rudiments of, are not very complicated. I mean, it's, if you can inspire people and interest them in, in a story or in, 
in telling the truth about a destination, um, you can inspire them. And that's how it all began. Yeah. No, it, it's a, I don't want to give away too much. There's a shocker in the middle of the book that came as a big surprise to me. That's all I'll say. There's lots of suspense in the book. Um, and Jeffrey, for those of you who don't know, is probably one of the biggest names in travel public relations. So I've got to ask you, uh, going beyond the book, what has that been like in this no travel time? How do you do your job when nobody is traveling? Um, it, it's, it's very interesting, Pauline. We have about 25 clients, um, all of whom, well, except two in Australia, because Australia is totally cut off from the world, who have maintained um, working with us and because they, along with the travel media, are desperate to keep the dream alive. Sure, um, yeah. They are hotels. Most of our clients are hotels, mostly in Europe and some in South America and Africa and Asia. And some of them are, are still open. Some of them are doing quite well. The European oh, ones good. are currently totally locked down, but they are readying and trying to excite people and to try and allow people to dream of the day that is going to come inevitably in five or six or eight months when we can go traveling again. Yeah, and I'm going to knock it wood. It will come back. It will come back. So what do you think? We actually just covered this on Fromers.com yesterday. We did an article on after the vaccine, when does travel return? And it's it's somewhat of an open question. And how will travel be different in the short run? Do you have any insights into that? Well, I've traveled to Europe twice in the last three months because and until December 31st, I had a, a European passport in addition to an American one. I now only have a British passport instead of an American oh, one. Yes. So wow. I was able to go all over. I was able to go to Portugal and Switzerland, Germany, Italy, Denmark, Sweden. And as different as it is, it wasn't as different as I thought it was going to be. In different countries, the wearing of masks was different. Yes. Um, and in different parts of different countries, it was different. Huh. Uh, was there in, a, an urban-rural divide, as there seems no, to be? No, no. There was a German-Swiss and a French-Swiss divide. In in French Switzerland, people wore masks and were very cautious. In German Switzerland, it was much more uh, open. And when I say open, I don't mean it in a positive sense. Mm. It was pretty. It was pretty alarming. And I was just in Sweden, where nobody wears a mask. Right, and uh, they're except, having a terrible. Yeah, they are having a, a terrible yeah, time of it. But yeah. it was interesting to see how hotels have. Uh, adapted to the need for, for super cleanliness and super sure. and for taking all sorts of precautions. Although I think as we've we've come to learn that it's not so much the surface touching that is the 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 killer, but the the breathing and the droplets and the the talking. But it it was very interesting to to see how what it's like to fly. Um, sure. I wore ski goggles. I wore wow. um, a mask, obviously, a, a serious mask, but I did take it off. I, I flew business class because I wasn't going to sit up all night, was able to sleep. But it, you know, it, the service is different. The service is less. Sure. Interestingly, when you land 
everybody is told to, to remain seated until their row is called huh. uh, so that there is no cramming in the aisles. Um, That's smart. That uh, yes. I flew a little bit this summer, but only domestically, and there was a lot of cramming. There was, yeah, there was no- and, and that was very stark. And of course, there were those who disobeyed or did, pretended sure. they didn't understand Swedish or whatever the language was. But it has changed things, and in some ways, in a lovely way. To be in an airport without crowds is kind of nice. Uh, yeah, an or or in a museum without crowds. Absolutely. I found that here in New York City. I've been having an extraordinary time rediscovering, uh, you know, all our cultural greatness. Exactly. Yeah. Well, once again, it was a delightful book and a serious book. Uh, you you deal with themes of anti-Semitism. You talk uh, with a lot of psychological astuteness about your family and your upbringing. And as I said before, there's a big surprise <laughs> that I did not see coming that was really fascinating and ultimately heartbreaking and heartwarming. I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for appearing on The Travel Show. It's been a delight. Well, thank you, Pauline. It's been it's been very lovely, and I I thank you so much. And that's our podcast for this week. I can't thank you enough for listening. As always, uh, especially in these no travel times, it is my privilege to chat with you and to chat with our amazing guests each week. Uh, Let me remind you once again that in between these podcasts, you can hear my voice, you can hear Jason's voice and Zach Thompson's voice and the voice of all the Fromers authors by reading us on Fromers.com. We also hope you'll continue to pick up the Fromer guidebooks. And to those who are traveling, even if it's only across the street (laughs) or into your living room, whatever it is, May I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week.